Welcome to this week's Digest edition of the Herald Scotland from the 5th to the 8th of February 2018. Read by volunteers at Cune Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopric's Media Centre. Coming up on Side One. No customs union with EU insists Downing Street. GPs quit BMA in protest at serious breach of trust over new contract. Ian McWhorter claimed to stand up with good manners and a thick skin against the vile troll. Rangers bank deal is another small step forward, says Stuart Robertson. Carillion. What does collapse mean for public sector contractors? Jeremy Peat. Rumblings in political undergrowth of start of construction debate. BP highlights scale of latest North Sea finds. Music, Scottish Chamber Orchestra at the City Halls, Glasgow. This article from the Herald on Monday the 5th of February 2018. News. No customs union with EU insists Downing Street. This article is unattributed. Downing Street has insisted the UK will not be in a customs union after Brexit, as Tory tensions over the government's plans continued to simmer. The move by number 10 to categorically state the UK will be leaving the customs union came as Theresa May and David Davis prepared to hold talks with Brussels chief negotiator Michel Barnier. Confirmation of the government's approach may placate Tory MPs and ministers who are keen for a Brexit arrangement which allows the UK to strike trade deals around the world, something which a customs union could have prevented. But business leaders have urged the government to remain in a customs union and Tory Brexit rebel Anna Soubry urged Number 10 to do the maths and listen to company bosses. She claimed the hard Brexit European Research Group, ERG, of Tory MPs led by Jacob Rees-Mogg had a deeply unattractive plan which involved leaving the customs union to chase unicorn trade deals at the expense of existing relations within the EU. The intervention by Downing Street sought to draw a line after days of sometimes confused messages from the top of government about the approach to future customs arrangements. It is not our policy to be in a customs union, a source said. The source said they would be seeking an arrangement with the EU to ensure trade remained as frictionless as possible after Brexit. Some Tories remain suspicious, accusing Chancellor Philip Hammond of seeking to pursue his own policy aimed at keeping Britain as closely aligned as possible with the EU. The chairman of the Commons exiting the EU committee, Hilary Benn, said further detail was still needed from ministers if the terms of a future deal with Brussels are to be agreed by October as hoped. I wish it was clarity, but I don't think it is. I think the government is in a state of open disagreement. The Prime Minister has been immobilised, the Labour MP told BBC Radio 4's Today. We are 19 months since the referendum, we are 9 months to go, and we still don't know what it is we want. It was a profound mistake to leave a customs union, he said, and it would create the need for checks at the Northern Irish border. The talks in Downing Street with Mr Barnier will mark the first time Mrs May, Mr Davis and the Brussels official have met since EU leaders gave the green light for the second phase of negotiations to start at their December summit in the Belgian capital. 
Since the optimism surrounding that meeting, French, fresh tensions have emerged after the European side insisted that EU law must continue to apply in the UK throughout the post-Brexit transition period expected to last around two years. Mrs May has already made clear that she intends to push back against the bloc's demands that EU citizens who come to the UK during the transition should enjoy the same rights as those who come before Britain leaves the EU on March 29, 2019. Ministers have complained that the demand goes beyond what was agreed at the December summit, but senior EU figures, including the European Parliament's Brexit core coordinator Guy Verhofstadt, insist it is not negotiable. The government has also come under fire from its own backbenchers for agreeing that any changes to EU law which are passed during the transition will apply in the UK, even though Britain will have had no say in the decision-making process. During a testy Commons Committee hearing last month, Brexit Secretary Mr Davis was accused by the leading Brexiteer, Mr Rees-Mogg, of allowing Britain to become a vassal state of the EU, a charge he rejected. The meeting in Downing Street will be followed on Tuesday by the first technical discussions by UK and EU officials in Brussels on the transition arrangements intended to ensure businesses and citizens are not faced with a cliff-edge break when Britain leaves the bloc. Meanwhile, senior ministers are also preparing for the first discussions on Britain's future relationship with the EU by Mrs May's so-called Brexit War Cabinet. Members of the Cabinet Brexit Subcommittee will meet on Wednesday and then again on Thursday as they seek to thrash out an agreement on thorny issues such as the customs arrangements with the remaining EU27. The subject is so sensitive that the Prime Minister has previously declined to authorise any formal discussion in the group. Over the weekend, Home Secretary Amber Rudd brushed aside warnings from hardline Brexiteers that Mrs May could face a leadership challenge if she fails to deliver a clean Brexit. Ms Rudd said ministers would not be intimidated and insisted that there was greater agreement around the cabinet table than MPs sometimes realised. This article is unattributed. GPs quit BMA in protest at serious breach of trust over new contract. Co, an exclusive by Helen McCardle, health correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 6th of February 2018. Family doctors in some of Scotland's most deprived and rural practices are quitting the BMA in protest at a serious breach of trust between the trade union leadership and its members over the new GP contract. In a damning letter to the BMA's GP leadership, signatories warn that the way funding will be allocated after April will have devastating effects on patients in remote and rural areas and will also lead to increased emergency admission rates and A&D attendances in some of Scotland's poorest communities. The Herald previously revealed figures showing that an estimated two-thirds of GP partners in Scotland will receive average windfalls worth £10,000 each under the new contract's controversial Scottish workload allocation formula, SWAF. However, SWAF has bitterly divided the profession as the vast majority of GPs in rural areas and some in the most deprived urban practices will get no uplift at all, while those in more affluent urban practices with a high proportion of very elderly patients gain financially. 
The GPs say it defies belief that BMA leaders did not realise that this would be the effect of the new formula, yet no details were laid out in the ballot paper document sent out to GPs in December. The letter adds, key information about the formula was deliberately withheld from Scottish GPs. Practices in the greatest need receive no additional resources, while those that are already relatively well resourced, including those of the negotiators, will receive all the financial benefits. The new GP contract for Scotland was backed by 71.5% of GPs compared to 28.5% opposed, but fewer than 39% of GPs actually participated in the ballot. In their letter, the GPs write that the low turnout is not a ringing endorsement of the new contract and means that a majority of GPs either did not vote or rejected the contract. The letter is addressed to Dr Alan McDevitt, chair of the Scottish General Practitioners Committee, SGPC, and one of the key negotiators of the contract with the Scottish Government, along with BMA national representatives Dr Chand Nagpal and Dr Richard Votri. The 12 GP signatories representing rural, island and deep-end practices in deprived communities such as Govan and Glasgow have already resigned or are seriously considering resigning the BMA in protest over the new contract. The BMA has repeatedly argued that no practice will be left worse off as a result of SWAF because any practices which lose out under the formula will receive income protection payments instead to maintain their income at current levels. However, critics insist that the real problem is that it will exacerbate a gulf in potential earnings between rural or deprived and urban affluent practices, making it more difficult to recruit GPs to less well-off practices. This, in turn, would reduce patients' access to primary care in these areas, leading to a rise in reliance on A&E instead. GPC Chair Dr McDivitt said the new contract has the clear backing of the profession. He added, the new contract will reduce the business risks faced by GPs, address spiralling workload demands and help to encourage more doctors to choose careers in general practice. It addresses the relative underfunding of practice workloads associated with elderly and deprived populations while ensuring that the finances of every practice are protected. The agreement to implement it was a landmark decision for general practice in Scotland and will help to restore hope for the future amongst many GPs. It is always regrettable when any doctor chooses to end their BMA membership and I hope that in time they will reconsider. As a profession, we are always at our most effective when we are united. This article from the Herald Scotland News on the 7th of February 2018. Ian McWhorter, time to stand up with good manners and a thick skin against the vile trolls. This article by Correspondents. I sometimes think Twitter was a demonic experiment dreamed up by a mythanthropic psychologist to demonstrate what happens when society breaks down. If we give people license to say anything they want to, people 
at random. And behind a cloak of anonymity, then, we should hardly be surprised at it brings out the worst in all of us, all the insecurity and nastiness. Resentment comes tumbling out as the normal social inhibitors are removed. Any left behind no hoper lying in his parents' bedroom can cock a snook at plutocratic feminists such as Beyoncé or loud politicians like Kezia Dugdale or self-important newspaper columnists come to that. We tend to lose our humanity online because we start to see people there not as people but as ciphers or things we hate or fear. Cybernats, yuns, libtards, people online become like children who, as many parents know, can be routinely cruel because they've not developed empathy or a capacity for shame. I sometimes meet people who are gratuitously offensive to me online and find that they're really rather charming and decent folk, not at all like their Twitter personas. They might even feel the same about me, but I've long struggled to avoid descending into the mire of foul language, reactive abuse and political sectarianism that social media encourages as a long-term user. I've come to the conclusion that the only way to avoid abuse on Twitter is to avoid Twitter. Just say no. Unfortunately, we can't uninvent the internet any more than we can pass laws to make people nicer. It doesn't just happen that way. Indeed, attempts to outlaw abuse over invariably a failure. Look at the Offensive Behaviour at Football Act. At present being replaced by the Scottish Parliament, but the Prime Minister appears to want to outlaw abuse on Twitter, particularly against politicians. She threads it is a threat to democracy and needs to be stopped. She is wrong. Abuse of politicians may be nasty, unnecessary and counterproductive, but it is not a threat to democracy. Making it illegal would be... It would be like returning to the 18th century laws of seditious libel, which made it illegal to make statements which brought hatred and contempt against the Queen, the government or the church, or fomented discontent among the populace. Cartoonists like Martin Rosemith of The Guardian, whose depiction of politicians as zombies and sewer rats even I find offensive, but clearly being the frame in her Manchester speech yesterday, Miss May condemned momentum trolls for driving Blair-tail politicians from office, but curiously she didn't condemn headline writers abusing judges as enemies of the people or Brexiteers abusing Remainers as traitors and saboteurs. I'm sure Miss May wouldn't make it illegal to accuse Jeremy Corbyn of being a vile IRA sympathiser, as so many Tories do. He finds that deeply offensive. Would it be illegal to call SNP supporters blood and soil nationalists or anti-English racists? Would it be illegal for vegans to accuse meat-eaters of being murderers or angry white men to call feminists feminazis? Of course not. Invective has been an essential part of political debate since Sikoro's time. Miss May says that there is a particular problem with abusive women politicians, although the evidence is not conclusive. 
A Demos study of 2 million tweets in 2014 found that male politicians and celebrities suffered more online abuse than women. A Pew survey last year confirmed that men are as likely to experience online abuse, though women find it more upsetting. This really isn't to do with being male or female, left or right. It's about all of us. We can't ban sheer nastiness. Of course, freedom of speech is not absolute and never has been. Threatening people with actual harm is a crime. And if you do it on social media, it is a breach of the peace. Hate crime against racial or sexual minorities is also illegal, as is making death threats even against racists. There was also the civil laws of defamation. The former Respect MP George Galloway had won damages from libel actions and is suing the leader of Momentum, John Lansman, for accusing him of being an anti-Semitite on Twitter. As this column has urged, much of the abuse and hate came on social media could disappear if websites such as Facebook were to honour their responsibilities as publishers and moderate posts, just as newspaper websites are required to do. But regulation can only go so far. Some of the most damaging abuse on social media is the routine nastiness exchanged by young people on Facebook and other platforms. It's girls and boys being told that they are friendless, ugly, useless, stupid and a waste of time. You can't outlaw such cruelty. Child psychologists are seriously worried about the effect it's having on young minds. And it's not just children. Anyone who goes on social media for any length of time will be exposed to soul-destroying abuse and negativity. When the young conservative Sophie Warner tweeted before Christmas that she was happy to have a Labour supporter as her friend, she was subjected to a catalogue of abuse and hateful remarks, often from women of Labour condemning white privilege. But it's rebounded on the haters when she insisted on treating them all with Civility and humour, this might be called passive trolling, turning the tables on the perpetrators by showcasing their nastiness. Even the left-wing columnist Owen Jones has moved to apologise to Miss Warner on behalf of trolls who had been so offensive. But passive trolling requires immense self-confidence and a rhino skin. Perhaps we need some sort of online peace and reconciliation movement to rewrite the rules of engagement on social media. Vigilantes of good manners to name and shame the trolls and show them up for what they are. Cowards and creeps. They might be naive, but in the end, good behaviour can only come from setting an example. The law is useless here because whatever Miss May thinks, being unkind isn't a crime. This article by Correspondence. The Herald Scotland, 38th of February 2018. Rangers Bank deal is another small step forward, says Stuart Robertson, an exclusive by Christopher Jack, Group Senior Sports Writer. For years, confusion was the new normality and uncertainty was the only predictability at Ibrooks as Rangers' fortunes on and off the park fluctuated and supporters were left fearing about the future. The strides taken on the road to recovery have, at times, been followed by steps back, but the dark clouds that once hung over the club have dissipated as progress has been made at all levels. 
It is what happens on a match day that will always be the main priority and concern for Jers fans. But, understandably, there are few supports that take as much interest in finance as well as football, that keep an eye on events in the boardroom as much as the dressing room. Rangers have agreed a banking deal with the Close Brothers Group and Managing Director Stuart Robertson believes it's another sign of the progress that has been made and the Light Blues want to make. We have a turnover of around £30 million this year and almost all businesses of that size will have a bank facility that they can use for working capital purposes, he told Herald Sport. You have a limit, but you can dip in and out of it over time. For football clubs, the cash flow is very strong in the summer and not so strong in the winter because in the summer you've got season ticket money, SPFL money and a lot of the commercial money comes in in the summer. That is the same for all clubs and it was the same at Motherwell. You can almost draw the graph perfectly in terms of the way the cash flow would go. This is a real vote of confidence in where we are taking the club and how we are taking the club forward to have someone like Close Brothers willing to provide us with a working capital facility. It is another part of normalising the club, to be honest, and you would expect any organisation, not just a football club of this size, to have banking facilities. This is the next step down the road in terms of getting things normalised and it is a positive thing for the club. The arrangements with Close Brothers give Rangers access to a seven-figure facility as the Ibrooks board move towards a healthier financial picture in the coming years. RIFC PLC posted a loss of £6.7 million for the 12 months to June 30, 2017, and investors, including Chairman Dave King, will continue to provide funds going forward. Rangers have had no access to external finance for some time and Robertson believes there is a vindication in the rebuilding work that has been done to date. He said obviously before you do something like this there is a lot of investigation into the finances and the business plan going forward and what we are proposing to do. We don't want to go daft and the bank are very comfortable with the level that it is at. It works for both of us, which is great, and it is vindication of how things are progressing at the club and how we're taking things forward. We're delighted that an organisation like Close Brothers have shown confidence in the way the club is being run and our future plans, and this is another step along the path and a normalisation of the business. That is something we've always talked about and this is a key element of that going forward, so we're delighted that we've been able to do it. The blueprint for the future for Rangers will centre around regaining top spot in Scotland and ensuring regular European action returns to Ibrox. But the football department was not the only one that was left damaged by previous regimes and it is not the only area of the club that requires a further investment. It is on the park where the most cash will need to be spent, but away from the quest for silverware, honours, supporters will soon see improvements being put in place. Robertson said, what it gives us is an additional source of funds and we have a plan to grow different departments in the business and there are projects around Ibrox that we are moving forward as well and this provides additional funding for those areas. Even things like the internals of the building and creating a better working environment for the staff, for example. We can invest in facilities and the surrounding areas like the Memorial Garden project and hopefully we will get planning on that next month. 
We're looking at things like fan zones to increase the engagement on a match day and Edmiston House. So there are different things that we have pressed the button on. Some of them will generate revenue and some will just improve the area and hopefully that will uplift the community round about as well. It is about improving the club and trying to get us to the next level again from where we have been. We've made decent progress so far, but we recognise that there is still some way to go. This is another element of the business that you would expect to be there for most businesses that unfortunately hasn't been there for us, but will be now. Remember, you no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can in fact listen to more daily content online via www.qandreview.com slash free podcasts, accessible on your computer or mobile device. Article from Herald Scotland, 6th February 2018. Business. Carillion. What does collapse mean for public sector contractors? Scott Wright, Deputy Business Editor. As the fallout from the collapse of Carillion continues to unfold, the spotlight has naturally fallen on the reasons for its failure and what lessons can be learnt to ensure similar insolvencies do not occur again at large public sector contractors. The redundancy tally at Carillion soared to more than 800 yesterday as the official receiver continues to sift through the wreckage of the contracting giant, which fell into liquidation last month with debts of £900 million, as well as a pension deficit of around £600 million. The company, which had been working on the Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route, had employed more than 20,000 in the UK and more than double that worldwide in total. Much debate has focused since on the current model for awarding public sector contracts, of which Carillion was a major recipient. It has been suggested that civil servants place too much emphasis on the price contractors say they can deliver these contracts for, rightly so, some say, because of the pressure on public sector coffers, and not enough on whether or not these prices are realistic. But it is not just the price at which contracts are awarded that is now in focus. Attention is now being paid to the business models on which companies such as Carillion are based. Other companies with exposure to public sector contracts have seen their share prices come under pressure in the last 12 months. Capita, the IT contractor, recently announced plans to raid £700 million to shore up its balance sheet after issuing a further profit warning. New Chief Executive Jonathan Lewis was frank about the challenges facing the company declaring it had become too complex and too widely spread across multiple markets and services. Capita shares are well adrift with their price a year ago, a situation which will be familiar to investors in Serco and Interserve. Leith Calaf, senior analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, said the Carillion collapse had been triggered by write-downs of £845 million because of higher-than-expected costs and delays on projects such as the Western Peripheral Route in Aberdeen. Its last annual profit was around £150 million. Yet Mr Calaf believes there is a degree of commonality to the issues some of the contracting companies faced. I am not seeing anything out there in the market which is causing this issue, Mr Calaf said. The kind of business they do has quite thin margins, some more than others, and the quality of earnings you get are not always great. Often what you are talking about are quite long-term contracts to deliver quite complex projects, which are obviously subject to delays, overruns, overbudgets, that sort of thing. 
that obviously leads to a great deal of uncertainty in terms of generating profits for these companies. He added, what we saw with Carillion particularly was that a couple of bad apples can really upset the whole apple cart. A couple of big projects going wrong on very thin margins leads to your entire profits being wiped out. Michael Hewson, chief market analyst at CMC Markets, is less convinced that the public sector contractor model is flawed. In the case of Carillion, he said, the company had overreached itself in the pursuit of major contracts. They have basically taken them on in cases where they don't have the capacity to fulfill them correctly, he said. However, Mr. Hewson said there needs to be a significant rethinking of how these contracts work. He added, the government has to decide whether or not it wants to continue doing these contracts in the current guise, and companies have to decide whether or not it is a win-them-at-all-cost scenario when looking to fulfil them. One suggestion mooted is for the procurement model to be changed to ensure a wider group of companies participate in public sector contracts in future. According to Mr. Khalaf, this could limit the exposure of public contracts if one of the suppliers goes bust. The flip side is the government is necessarily cost-conscious on behalf of taxpayers and so must give some weight to the price at which these contracts are being delivered, he said. Moreover, while the public would likely welcome greater scrutiny on the, on the awarding of contracts, Mr. Hewson said there is a limit to what civil servants can achieve in terms of due diligence. I think civil servants probably lack the skill set to run the rule over complex contract laws, but that's not just something the government is guilty of. The private sector is guilty of it as well, he said. As well as concerns over jobs and pensions, the Carillion collapse generated some anger over how much its leading executives were being paid as it issued a series of profit warnings last year. Mr. Khalaf said the issue of executive pay and bonuses was a wider issue in the corporate world than just at Carillion, and Mr. Hewson noted his concern that the company continued to pay dividends while its pension deficit widened, declaring that this is an issue which should be looked at more generally. In the meantime, investors in the big contractors have little grounds for comfort. Yes, the risks are really coming home to roost, and there is not a great deal of visibility about where the problems, if any, might come up, Mr. Khalaf said. This article from the Herald on Monday the 5th of February 2018. Business. Jeremy Peet. Rumblings in political undergrowth of start of construction debate. This article by Jeremy Peet. Hush, whisper it quietly, but I believe that there are rumblings in the political undergrowth which just could be indicative of the start of a constructive debate on how to improve the performance of the Scottish economy. Last week, Ruth Davidson, leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, spoke at the RSE for the David Hume Institute. This was one of a regular annual series of talks by the party leaders, with this year's theme being Scotland after Brexit. Each of the previous DHI leader series of leaders' talks had taken place in the run-up to a major election or referendum. Indeed, as Ms Davidson pointed out in her eight years as party leader, she has had to cope with six national, Scottish or UK elections and two referenda. The spectre of Brexit still looms large over all political and economic debate. But perhaps there is now a chance to peer beyond the horizon and focus on the medium-term outlook rather than undue concentration on the very short term. The need for this longer-term view is clear, 
As Ms Davidson pointed out, this forecast for the Scottish economy, provided by the new and independent Scottish Fiscal Commission, SFC, was distinctly gloomy. Not only does the SFC forecast point to the lowest sustained period of GDP growth for Scotland for more than 60 years, it is also, Ms D assured us, the lowest projected GDP growth rate in the developed world, lower than any other official forecast across the EU, the OECD and the G14. We know that all forecasts are doomed to be wrong in some unpredictable direction, but even being at the very bottom of the forecast league table has to be, at the very least, cause for concern and a cause to pause and reflect what can be done about this sorry state of affairs. The easy answer is to blame our low growth outlook on some combination of Brexit and the restrictive policies of past and present UK Conservative governments. But that cannot be an adequate response. We must look to our own policies, procedures and programmes and see how we can hope to facilitate faster and preferably more balanced growth via actions for which we have responsibility or at least influence. There are signs that this examination is underway. Ms Davidson referred to the Economic Commission led by Lord Dunlop, which she has commissioned. A report is due around May and topics to be covered will include how to improve Scotland's conversion rate of high-quality research and innovation, a revisiting of priorities within education to better reflect the demand out there in the big, wide, evolving world, priorities for infrastructure and the need for a clearer, overarching economic strategy for Scotland. This new report will not be on its own. The comprehensive examination by Andrew Wilson and team for the First Minister, Inter Alia, on means to improve balanced growth must be published before too long. It has been long trailed and long anticipated, but it should finally reach the public domain by March this year. Their work should be of genuine high quality and well worthy of careful examination, covering the growth disappointment, the public finances and currency options in the event of independence. Note the lack of easy bits. I was in the group of sceptics when the government decided to create a strategic and overarching board to oversee the work of the Enterprise and Skills Agency. My concern was what value-adding function this body could fulfil, given the boards that existed for each of the separate bodies. However, it would now seem that they have found a really valuable role for themselves, working to develop the overarching economic strategy referred to by Ruth Davidson, obviously in close collaboration with Government Chief Economic Advisor Gary Gillespie and his team. This work would start by considering how best to achieve inclusive growth, including what is really implied by that term, and what the trade-offs might be between faster and more inclusive growth. Even accepting that there may be such trade-offs is a major and essential step forward. I understand that the areas this group plan to examine include Scotland's weakness on business skills, productivity in every aspect, empowering young people to thrive as the digital agenda unfolds, and consequently a fresh look at education priorities, particularly the sixth form and beyond. Their approach will be to work on problems and then solutions, hoping for close business involvement in that process. From all these different strands, there is real hope of constructive and effective debate. Perhaps the biggest issues surround education and skills. Professor David Bell said the other day that automation is going to win out on practically everything that does not involve human contact. But that should not mean some great schism between, on the one hand, top-level jobs for the few, 
where unique human skills still dominate, and on the other low-skill, low-productivity jobs for the many, where automation has won out. We need to equip younger people, and that includes many already within the labour force, with the right skills, broadly defined, to find their roles in the evolving world. Success here will help to bring in the decades ahead, both balanced growth and work-life satisfaction for those within the labour force. Jeremy Peat is Visiting Professor at the University of Strathclyde International Public Policy Institute. This article by Jeremy Peat. This article from the Herald Scotland. Business. On the 7th of February 2018, BP highlights scale of latest North Sea finds. This article by Mark Williamson. BP has underlined the significance of the two North Sea finds it announced last month and held out the prospect it could approve more bumper developments in areas such as west of Shetland. Announcing a 140% increase in annual profits to £6.2 billion or £4.4 billion pounds from £2.6 billion, the oil giant said the discoveries helped the firm enjoy its most successful campaign in the North Sea for years. The comments will encourage hopes the Akmelvich find west of Shetland and Capercaillie east of Aberdeen could be on a big enough scale to help power a big increase in BP's North Sea business. When they were announced last month, BP's North Sea chief Mark Thomas said the company expected to double production in the area to 200,000 barrels a day by 2020. BP's result presentation yesterday included plenty to suggest the firm sees the potential to make lots of money in the North Sea in coming years. The update will boost hopes. The recovery in the North Sea fueled by the increase in crude prices last year is gathering pace. BP yesterday highlighted the size of the returns it has been generating on the investments it is making in west of Shetland. The company noted the revamped Shai Hallen Field was one of seven startups that provided a big boost to profitability in 2017. The Clear Ridge Field off Shetland is one of six bumper projects due to completion this year. The head of BP's exploration and production business, Bernard Ore, included four North Sea fields in the portfolio projects. He said gave BP long-term growth options, including two off Shetland. Mr Ore said BP expects to make a decision on whether to proceed with two new North Sea developments this year without naming them. He also noted the potential to make more finds in the North Sea, which he came to know well when he was running BP's business in the area. The group's chief executive, Bob Budley, reckons BP can maintain strong growth. The company has pruned its portfolio and slashed costs in response to the crude price plunge from 2014. This compounded the challenge posed by the Gulf of Mexico oil spill in 2010, which has cost it $65.8 billion. The company has shed around 900 North Sea jobs and sold a range of assets it decided were non-core since 2014. 2017 was one of the strongest years in BP's recent history, said Mr Dudley. 
He added we entered the second year of our five-year plan with real momentum, increasingly confident that we can continue to deliver growth across our business, improving cash flows and returns for shareholders. BP benefited from the increase in oil and gas prices in 2017, combined with growth in its output. Cuts in production by major exporters such as Saudi Arabia have supported the market. BP appears confident supply and demand have been brought back broadly into balance. Finance Chief Brian Gilvery said the crude price could soften this year, but Brent will likely remain at above $50 per barrel, compared with less than $30 BBL earlier than 2016. It fetched $115 BBL in June 2014. The company signalled its confidence in the prospects for the market in November, when it became the first major restart share buybacks since 2014. It returned £3.48 million to shareholders before the year's end. It held the FHE fourth quarter dividend at 10% share. BP made $2.1 billion profit in the fourth quarter on the replacement cost basis against $0.4 billion last time. Royal Dutch Shell last week said it grew fourth quarter profits by 140% to $4.3 billion from $1.8 billion. BP said its North Sea exploration performance in 2017 was its best since 2008, when the company made the 50 million barrel canoe found north of Aberdeen. This article by Mark Williamson. This article from the Herald on Monday the 5th of February 2018. Arts. Music. Scottish Chamber Orchestra at the City Halls, Glasgow. This article by Keith Bruce. Music, Scottish Chamber Orchestra, City Halls, Glasgow, Keith Bruce, five stars. One of the largest audiences the City Hall has seen for the SCO this season was hopefully mirrored at the three other venues where Elizabeth Leonskaya played Beethoven's Fifth Emperor Piano Concerto in what will undoubtedly be a highlight of the year's music. With German conductor Clemens Schult, the better part of 40 years her junior on the podium, this was a master class in pianism and partnership with the ensemble, just as the composer intended. Schult was very attentive to his soloist and the players equally responsive, so that the key moment of the transition into the finale, explicitly identified as such on the score by Beethoven, was as exquisitely realised as one might wish. The tonal variation Leon Skaya produced from the Steinway over the course of the work was often astonishing. Well, her big stride left hand, as a jazz player would identify it, was always in perfect balance and dialogue with her superbly articulate right. Although Leon Skaya is the opposite of demonstrative, here was a performance of passion as well as precision that was faithful to every detail of the score. The central movement of the concerto sets a template for much music that followed, while the 20th century music we heard before the interval looked backwards. In the case of Prokofiev's Symphony No. 1, that is to Mozart, Haydn and indeed Beethoven, not in any way pastiche but certainly playful, 
while the gavotte in the middle prefigures his own ballet scores. The Chamber Symphony of Shostakovich, on the other hand, an arrangement of his Eighth Quartet by Rudolf Barshai, reviews the composer's own musical career with much reference to his personal signature and quotations from earlier works. What precisely Shostakovich was saying in 1960 by this is as open to interpretation as just about everything else in his catalogue, but with leader Stephanie Gonley on top form as the main solo voice, the richly sonorous ensemble of the SCO strings was profoundly moving. This article by Keith Bruce. End of side one. Please fast forward to the end of the tape and turn over for side two.